sick and you were old. I play the fool, drown in gold. Time is money, so I'm told. Look, I've come undone again. Darling, I can't be your friend. If you were lost, I'll win it on my own. Oh, roll your stove. Deep into the night, your stove. Blocking out the light, your stone. We can't you sleep alone in our old night, or are you just not letting go? Your stove. This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I am Andreas Babiolakis. Today we sort of have a bit of an interesting treat for you. Uh, I know just recently we, we talked about the best picture winners from 1938 to 1947. And one of the films on the list that we both really loved was one Rebecca by Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, and... You know, as we were leading up to this, you would actually send me a message and be like, hey, Guillermo del Toro is doing a screening of Rebecca at uh, the Tiff Bell Lightbox. We should probably go check that out. And, and I think when when you messaged that to me, you probably meant that we just go for fun. But I think it worked pretty serendipitously into our schedule because at the time we didn't have any other podcasts coming up and we had just we we knew we were about to record our our 10 Oscar movies and Rebecca was a part of it so I thought it was a pretty natural succession to sort of maybe do a podcast not only about Rebecca but about Alfred Hitchcock as well um so I guess I want to know what what was that experience for you? Have you ever seen Guillermo del Toro in person? Uh, I know I'm very familiar with watching him talk that he's quite a fascinating character, but but what did you think of him? He's got an infectious personality live. Um I've never seen him before, but I actually knew he did these talks because a friend of mine saw him and, and it's weird because he kind of expects you to go to all of his seminars because he'll always refer to the next one like, oh, and the next one, if you've seen this film, you come back and talk to me about it, you know? Um, so we only saw him for Rebecca. My friend saw him for his entire Hitchcock week, or at least most of it, so she got the full experience on the Guillermo del Toro summer school experience, and um, Apparently, he's just as funny, just as on his feet with his jokes and his self-deprecation, um, just as bizarre, in, in a great way, of course. And he genuinely, apparently, links all of these seminars together, if you were to go to all of them. So, he obviously isn't just winging it, despite the fact that a lot of this is off the top of his head. He puts a lot of work into this. He's... He is a true film geek, I would say. One that has a passion and a flair, but isn't too whimsical and fleeting to um, not be grounded. So he goes off on tangents, but he's always anchored. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think for him, you know, it's no secret that he is he's a huge cinema lover. He he talks about other people's works a lot in his interviews and where his influences come from. And, and you could definitely see that in his works, whether it's uh, whether it's stuff like Pan's Labyrinth or Pacific Rim or his older Spanish movies as well. I I don't I I know he does a lot of preparation for these sort of things, but 
I wonder if, you know, his preparation and someone else giving a lecture, what their preparation is, is very different because I, I think he does this because he loves it. You know, he gets to geek out and talk about some of his favorite films. So he gets he, he does a little bit of reading and combining that with the work he already knows that it's probably not incredibly difficult for him. That's why he's able to kind of do this in between his shooting schedules, because I believe he's still working on uh, his his latest movie called Crimson Peak, um, which isn't out yet. I think it's still in post-production, so I think he's doing work on that. I think that's even why he's in Toronto was to do work on it, because I know we have a lot of editing facilities here. Yeah, and you raise a good point that he does this because he loves it. I, I think if a film of his got panned, when I say he wouldn't care, obviously he would have some sort of a a response to it, but I don't think he makes films for those kinds of reasons. I think he makes films because he can make films. I mean, most of his movies are just so different in nature. The only two I can think that are, that are alike are the two Hellboys because, well, they're they're kind of paired together. And they're just so different and with such a different take. You, you can tell that this is somebody who studies the the. The, the art of film and tries to have a different approach on it every single time. And his influence is clearly on his sleeve and it gets reflected in everything that everything that he does. And the fact that, yeah, he takes his time out of his day to come talk to people late, might I add, after a long, grueling editing schedule. And let's not forget that he's done this four years in a row previously talking about Hitchcock, talking about Studio Ghibli and Miyazaki. Uh, what were some of the other lectures he gave? I, I don't know for sure, but it's, it's something along the same lines where, you know, he's taking classic films and allowing us to, to view them with him and sort of getting an insight into his brain. Yeah. Well, nonetheless, this is still after, years of of hard work and even like the day of you know typically with films you're up quite early and you're you're at it for most of the day so he put it best when he said that directing is like juggling while being chased by a train (laughs) and what with like eight balls or something yeah it's it's very very difficult so the fact that he's here and he's wanting to be here and he's all smiles and jokes and everything that's a true testament to his character that he's willing to put everything else aside because he loves film and filmmaking so much i feel in that respect he's a bit like quentin tarantino who will routinely um screen movies for his cast and crew during shooting just because he loves the act of of filmmaking and showing movies and in, in that whole experience so much and, and I, I sort of get a similar vibe from del toro about that as well um now i guess you know we talked about guillermo del toro and you know that's kind of crazy for us because i i know i'm a huge fan of his between the hellboy movies and pan's labyrinth pan's labyrinth especially is definitely one of the best films of the past, you know, 15, 20 years or so. Um, but uh, the whole purpose of the screening was to talk about Rebecca. And 
I had Rebecca was one of the last films I watched in the Oscar countdown, and I know it was one of your first ones. But uh, what did you? What new things did you learn from watching this that you either you either missed or you didn't think about um, from hearing Del Toro speak about it? Well, one thing I noticed, and I wasn't sure if Del Toro was the person who shed light on this shadowy film, um, the possible overuse of scoring and for me i was still okay with it but the music was definitely more noticeable and perhaps not in the greatest way i again i was still fine with it but it was something that was shed light on and um del toro mentioned the dubbing that oselsnick probably commanded happen in post where characters faces would be turned away from the camera and you would just hear like a bit of a of a miscued dialogue, right? Um, I don't know. Again, I don't know if it was because Del Toro told me it was there or if I noticed it just because I was watching it on a massive screen and not my laptop this time. Um, so a lot of it was more about the filmmaking aspects as opposed to the story or um, any small details within like the cinematography, which I didn't catch the first time. The only thing story-related that I caught this time around were obviously cues as to um, what the whole twist and the plot threads would would lead to, because obviously it's a mystery. You won't notice these things the first time around. But apart from that, yeah, most of it was the actual filmmaking. What about you? Well, I agree with what you were saying about the the score. He he referred to it as Mickey Mousing, where uh, every action has a... Uh, basically a music cue that sort of relates to it. You know, the character seems happy. It's a happy swell. The character is angry. It's a, it's a deep swell sort of thing. Um, and that's, that's a huge problem that I have with, with movies made, I don't know, basically any time before the 90s, even the 90s do it as well. It seems to be only more of a recent trend where uh, they allow, filmmakers allow the scores to be a little more natural. Um there's very few scores from early movies that I think are are fantastically paired with their film counterparts. And this was something where I I probably didn't notice as much because I was very invested in the story. But yeah, when when he mentioned it and you see it again and you're just like, this is kind of annoying actually to listen to the music at some point. Yeah, well... I- a good example, I would say, for a lot of people who kind of don't get what this is at the moment, if you watch The Artist and you notice like the xylophone trailing every step that uh, Jean Dujardin takes, so like each step he takes, there's like a, a, a xylophone that's accompanying him while he's dancing. That's, bas- that's basically it, where it feels like he's playing the xylophone with his feet almost. That's Mickey Mousing. And as you said, a lot of films had that back then because pairing music with film, especially during talkies, was kind of new, so they didn't know how to separate um, this music that scored a dial- uh, a t- like a speechless film rather than a film that can talk and have its own say, and the music just kind of accompanied it as an atmosphere. So yeah, a lot of films back then had it, and it's more of a recent thing where it's just an atmosphere now rather than a complete talking entity, so... If you want a good example, because obviously the artist is supposed to feel like a film that's that's a silent picture from back in the day, uh, that that's a clever use of it because it was done intentionally. 
Yeah, that's definitely the the most obvious example where it's done it's done in a very meta way. Um, another cool thing that I sort of learned was um, Laurence Olivier, his monologues basically tell an entirely different movie that we don't get to see. Almost most of his speeches regard to things that happened in the past, about his past life with his wife Rebecca before she died, and the aftermath and all that sort of thing. But we're not privy to any sort of flashback or anything like that at all so it's kind of interesting that you know if they wanted to if someone really wanted to they can make an entire movie using olivier's speeches as a plot outline it'd be a fairly fleshed out film yeah which i don't know about you but i kind of like it the way it is because it's so much more colder and you kind of feel like you're reaching to get more but you're being cut off which just adds to the shriveled nature of the film. And, it, and it, it leads to really interesting parts, like Del Toro himself even pointed out, when the camera occupies an empty space and is moving around as if you see like this ghostly figure of Rebecca walking around. And it's, it finally ends up panning to Lawrence Olivier, who's been talking to this empty space for the last two minutes or so. I, you know, We wouldn't have had scenes like that if it relied on flashbacks. And let's not forget that Oh, Selznick probably would have made these flashbacks really, really hokey if he had his if he had his way with them, you know. Yeah, that was that was something I noticed the the very first time I watched the film a few years ago, and that's I think that's one of the best moments of the entire film that you're referring to when uh, Olivier's character is is talking about the night that his wife died in the boathouse, and that camera movement, like. You know, he tilts up, he pans, the camera then moves. Like, there's, it's quite an intricate little movement that's going on. And, and I don't think it's so simple, yet it works so perfectly that you wonder, is this something that other filmmakers maybe overlooked or didn't think would work? Or is Hitchcock the only person that could pull something like that off? Right, and... Um, I guess once we're done talking about Rebecca, we're definitely going to go into the things that helped make um, Hitchcock one of the best of all time, if not the possible best. Um, but there's still quite a bit of Rebecca, I think, to talk about. Like, this time around, I know you've seen it once. I know you've seen it twice. The third time, how did you feel about Laurence Olivier? Um... <laughs> I almost disliked him more. I remember you were saying because it was more amplified on screen that to you it was more noticeable. Yeah, I my issues with with his performance in case you either didn't listen to the other podcast or, or you're not familiar with it. I feel that he gives a bit of a phoned-in performance at times, that there's only a few moments where he seems really invested. And I know his character is supposed to be a bit aloof and cold, but I think an actor as good as him, he's acting those scenes instead of being those scenes. Uh, And if you're really... It's kind of hard to explain if you're not really understanding the language of of acting uh but you understand what i'm saying right i do yeah um i you wouldn't know who wrote this i don't remember there's a book that i think is probably one of the best 
for for actors it's called how to stop acting and i remember a lot of uh fellow classmates this is back in high school so understandably this isn't like actual theater students a lot of classmates would say that's such a stupid name why would it be called that but to me it makes perfect sense because actors aren't supposed to act they're supposed to be i don't know if you know this story but when Roland brando was still uh in actor school you know the teacher gives the teacher would give some crazy scenarios for them like one of them was pretend you're a chicken during a nuclear war and go and everybody else would run like a chicken got their head cut off going crazy and Marlon Brando kind of just stood there trying to lay an egg and the teacher said what are you doing aren't you scared he says he says to the teacher I'm a chicken what the hell do I know about atomic bombs and that's a great example there instead of acting like such and such you're being the reality of the situation so to me I it makes perfect sense to me and I kind of see where you're getting at where it didn't feel like he was a part of the picture he felt like he was kind of just getting his paycheck and and inflicting emotions um I wouldn't agree entirely but I could see why you feel that way and and yeah basically for for people who don't study film there is such a thing as overacting definitely where you're obviously reading lines off of a page not just because you're doing it in a monotone fashion but because you're doing it in too big of an action yeah and then i guess on the flip side is i was a little so-so on joan fontaine's performance before i really loved it after seeing it on the big screen and also hearing some of the stuff del toro was saying about her a lot of it was stuff that i was I was thinking and seeing and realizing, but I wasn't knowing how to to put it into words to explain it. Um, like the idea of that Fontaine was was perp- um, was she was being infantilized to show her innocence to the point of not even naming her to give to giving her the character a name. She's just known as Mrs. De Winter um, was something that like I thought about. I was like, wow, there's quite a few moments where, you know, she's either treated like a child or she seems to act like a child. But that whole point is the innocence. And then after she knows about how Rebecca died, she suddenly changes. And it's quite a noticeable shift in her performance as well. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because even the way that uh, Olivier's character proposes, where he just says, don't you know I want to marry you, you fool? And the fact that she's spinning by it, yeah, for most of the movie, she's kind of just this childlike character that gets yanked across the screen into this rich household. And even, I can't remember her name, even the person she was working for kind of saw her as not very much. Oh, can you do this for me? Do my chores. Oh, wouldn't it be lovely if I talked to this fellow? Well, you can just do stuff for me. You know, nobody really takes her seriously. So the one time that the film itself decides to is when she's when she's facing the concept of death and the fact that this person she married may or may not have killed someone. And that's kind of like the destruction of childhood right there. And it's interesting to note that because Del Toro himself who created Penn's Labyrinth, which is a great example of this, said that there are a lot of similarities between fairy tales and gothic artwork. And fairy tales back in the 18th century were cautionary tales that basically said, don't do this because this will, st- this will destroy your innocence in your childhood. So 
the fact that we can notice that visibly present here, I think is a great reason why he featured it in his Gothic film week, because it is quite a staple within that movement. Absolutely. Um, now, I guess uh, I, I think we should move on to talking about what maybe uh, we learned about Hitchcock himself. So not just specifically to Rebecca. Um, I thought it was kind of interesting pointing out that in uh, in Rebecca, I guess Hitchcock was was working as a bit of a, a German impressionist filmmaker with his use of of light. Um, kind of like in the home movie scene and you see that and and I just have flashes of the other German impressionist films that I have seen stuff like either Nosferatu or the cabinet of Dr. Caligari or things like that, where they're, they're quite different thematically, but that idea of uh, light only being on the eyes and the rest of the space is dark is a very German technique and seeing that just sort of, realizes you think oh Hitchcock is a sort of you know self-made man he made his own shots and and sort of things like that but then you realize no there had to be some sort of influences on him and when he was coming up obviously the 1920s would probably be when he first started you know paying attention to film I know he started directing not long after that so it's kind of cool to see that parallel there yeah the whole lights and shadows being used is it's quite noticeable in in Rebecca especially because there's that scene which Del Toro himself points out for this specific reason where um, they're watching old videos, or not videos, um, they're watching old tape reels on their projector and you just see this light kind of facing Joan Fontaine's eyes and then it suddenly the whole room will light up because a different picture is on screen and you, you see her whole face all teary eyed and it's a great use of, of light and shadow. And yeah, no, it's, it's exactly what it is. It's a German expressionist film made for Americans or for, for the English. Yeah. Um, Del Toro was saying that Hitchcock was very conscious of class warfare in his films. Do you do you agree with that statement? I I'm not too sure where I where I fall on that. Maybe because I've only seen maybe ten or so of his close to a hundred films uh, that I can't accurately say agree or disagree with that. But where was your take on that comment? I think to an extent because let's look at something like Psycho. Psycho, where you have this kind of rich lady who's leaving to flee the scene and she ends up in this dingy motel where this kind of rundown fellow lives and he's creepy and you know there's there's nothing to do there except for like stuffed dead animals you know so even there where it's not like noticeably about the actual classes like oh i'm rich and you're poor even there it's the bad guy is is this guy who isn't even close to this person's league. And then if you look at something like, let's say, a rear window where you have maybe this rich person who's kind of stuck in his room with nothing but his camera because he's a rich photographer, and he's kind of looking at, around the block and... Aside from the fact that his leg's broken, he's got it really easy. He's got a beautiful girlfriend. He's got a rich 
career, but he's he's observing the awful lives of all of these people around him. Like, oh, that Miss Lonely Hearts, like I think her name was. Uh, she's she's alone, and nobody wants to be with her. Uh, this person has these problems. So it's kind of like this man on a higher window observing all of these people who are less fortunate than him around him. So I don't know if there's a lot of warfare, except for maybe Rebecca is a good example of that. But there is a lot of statements on the different classes and um, their different capabilities and achievements. Yeah, I agree that Rebecca is probably the one that's most likely to be able to see that. But I don't know. Um, yeah, that's, that's sort of a tough thing for me to, to really agree with. Maybe because the fact that he was British, that unlike North America, I, I don't want to say there is a bit of a caste system in England, but there's definitely noticeable differences where you're sort of looked down upon depending on uh, what part of the country you're from. Are you from a more working class area like Liverpool or stuff like that? Or are you from a more uh, upper class, almost um, the the sort of stuff that um, uh, the importance of being earnest would make fun of, like from uh, Leicester or something like that, where you're all stuffy and upper crust rich sort of thing. So I don't know. Uh, it, it's sort of an interesting thing to sort of think about as I, as I watch more Hitchcock films. Um, but, but who knows? Um, do you have any other comments that you maybe, you maybe learned about Hitchcock specifically when from, from Del Toro? Well, we all kind of knew if you study Hitchcock at all, we all kind of known that um, he's kind of tortured, especially his actresses, um, to get the best performances out of them. So we kind of knew that. And I did know ahead of time that um, Joan Fontaine was told that everybody hates her through this. But aside from that, um, I think a lot of what we learned about Hitchcock were things that if you study Hitchcock enough, you'd probably know. I learned more about the actual film itself, like why specific motions were done, why specific actions were taken. But I think, I think anybody who loves Hitchcock enough would have known a lot of these things. Like he, he was a monster to his actresses. He loved camera effect. He loved being a perfectionist. You know, these are things that, Obviously, you and I would know a lot about because, I mean, for God's sakes, we're named after a camera technique that Hitchcock basically helped bring to the front. Oddly enough, because, well, it's contra-zoom. But anyways, yeah, I, I don't know about you, but I learned more about the film in many ways. Whereas with Hitchcock, it was kind of just stuff like, oh, yeah, I know he's a perfectionist. I know he could be a dick. You know? Yeah, he, he sort of stayed away from, I guess, the personal aspect of it and, and went more into specifics about the film, which, you know, as much as I would love to hear Del Toro talk about juicy secrets about Hitchcock, I think everyone in the audience was there because they were there for an intellectual conversation about Rebecca in Gothic films and the like. So I'm sort of happy that he managed to stay on topic. Um, but I guess, uh, you know, Hitchcock to me is, is someone that means a great deal. I think the first film, the first real film that I, I paid attention to 
when I was growing up that wasn't purely for entertainment aspect was when uh, my mother had shown me The Birds when I was pretty young. We we borrowed it from uh, our local library and watched it because that was one of her favorites uh, from back in the day too. So he's always been someone that I've sort of gravitate with and I, I have I keep him on a bit of a pedestal as far as important filmmakers. Um, what what do what do his works mean to you? Believe it or not, I wasn't always a cinephile. Um, I, I loved some movies, but not just films as a whole. And I actually took this horror literature class in high school. And you know how high school is. Watching films in in an academic setting, especially at that age, can be a disaster. I remember I used to hate Schindler's List because it was split up in three days. And now I consider it one of the, the ultimate masterpieces of cinema. Not just because my tastes have changed, but because I don't have to watch it in four different parts, you know. Um, <laughs> so usually it's, it's I'm kind of against, well, not against, but I, I see a big flaw in showing films in high school because it splits it up so much that it becomes unenjoyable and it itself becomes homework. And I don't know why we watched two Hitchcock films, but we did. Um Actually, no, I lied. We watched three, I think. Yeah, so we it had nothing to do with the literature we were reading. Only one of them did, which was Psycho. We read something that, that was linked to it. The rest of it was just, hey, let's watch Hitchcock. And again, it's a disastrous setting because it splits films up in half and and all of that. So when we first watched Psycho, I said, oh, great, here we go, another old film, let's see how this goes. But, you know, it's supposed to be great, it's supposed to be really scary, so let's see. Even though it was split in half because of the class ending and we had to continue with the day afterwards, I mean, I was I was hooked. I, I saw a lot of it was dated, but at the same time, for some reason, I was just completely hooked. So when we were told there was this movie that this man stays in the same room the entire time, I was fine. I said, okay, yeah, let's watch this because uh, Psycho was great. And then we watched The Birds afterwards as well. And well, it didn't necessarily change film for, for me, like in terms of like wanting to watch all of it. it. It gave me insight on Hitchcock himself. So once I became a cinephile a few years later, it gave me an incentive to say, okay, I remember these were great. Let me watch everything else this guy's done because if I'm going to just study more about cinema, he's a great way to start because he he is quite a cinematic genius. So to an extent, yeah, he certainly helped shift my taste as well. Well, that's good. And I think we can't understate how how much of an influence he is on, on this podcast either because originally we had wanted to call the show The Third Man, which I still think is a fantastic name, and boo on Sean for not letting us take it, but I guess I understand. Stupid Jack White, you know, everyone would think it would be some Jack White podcast or something related to that. And as we were... Like upholstery. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, And then as we are, you know, scratching our brains to sort of figure out something, we came up... I I was reading, I was like, oh, ContraZoom, that's a really cool name. You know, it's it's unique. It stands out. It's easy to say. It's easy to remember. It looks. We were cool. thinking exactly. We were thinking Hitchcock, anyways, because one of the first ones we had was the MacGuffin. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, which is in theory a good idea, but a terrible name to say over and over again. Where ContraZoom <laughs> actually sounds kind of cool. This is a MacGuffin, or is it? <laughs> you know? Actually, um, now it's not so bad. Maybe we should go back to it. <laughs> <laughs> we are now going to rebrand then. Um, oh, great! Here we go. <laughs> so I think we mentioned it on the very first episode of ContraZoom, but I'll mention it again. ContraZoom, what it is, is a name of a shot that Hitchcock invented for vertigo so the famous scene when uh they're going up the bell tower and he looks down and you know he realizes vertigo is kicking in and what's and it makes this weird sort of like spiraling zooming in zooming out claustrophobic anxious sort of feeling that's that shot is called contrazoom what's happening is uh, you can do it in either direction, but uh, the camera is on a dolly and the, the whole camera is being pulled backwards as the zoom is going inwards. So the point of focus remains the same, but the background and foreground is sort of changing. Or you can do it in reverse where the camera is being pushed forward and you're zooming outwards. Uh, it doesn't really matter. It's the same. It's the same deal. And it, it makes kind of a nauseating effect. And it was done again most famously in Jaws, when um, the the police chief is sitting on the beach and he thinks he sees a shark in the water, and they they contra zoom on his face. Uh, it's also called a dolly zoom, among other things, and it's just an absolutely fantastic shot. It's been used a lot, you know, since then, sort of in a bit of a half homage, half I don't want to say mocking, but it's not not always done to for, for the same effect that it was done in vertigo and in jaws which i think are the two best examples of it or have you seen raging bull uh when when do they do it in that i have seen raging bull uh in his in the fight that uh joe pesci's character says that that's it that's the last one you know um uh that that's his last hit uh remember when he kind of just stops fighting and uh, uh sugar ray robinson I believe that's his name, his opponent he fights a few times. He's kind of standing there, and they do a contra-zoom where the backdrop suddenly looks huge, and he looks menacing. Like, in one take, he goes from looking like Meek to, oh yeah, I'm going to absolutely destroy Jake LaMotta. It's probably my favorite example of it ever, because the lighting changes along with the, with the actual shooting. It's an absolute, it's an absolute masterful shot. Absolutely. And it's definitely one of the most creative and inventive shots in cinema's history. Uh, all that said, I think uh, we should take a, a short little break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk a bit about uh, Hitchcock's catalog. So stay tuned. Well, the news found me today, a million steps away. These things take time to travel, it would seem I can't even fall apart Really now, where would I start? I swear we spoke last night or did I dream? All right, now I figure we've talked about Rebecca and we've talked about Hitchcock the Man and the Director. I guess let's talk about maybe some spe specifics on uh, what we thought about the man's greatest works, because he's done quite a bit. Uh, 
what what would you say is your your favorite film of his? I guess we'll lead off with whatever one you say. It's really difficult because when we decided to do this episode uh, a week or two ago, I said I have pretty much a rotating top five. But if I absolutely had to pick one, I think I would go with Vertigo because because of the ending alone, I would say. But as a whole, Vertigo is perhaps his best use of a mental breakdown on film where, you know, there isn't an actual visual monster of sorts, like a killer or, um, or crimes being committed. You know, most of this is just within the main character's head. And, you know, it's this big winding story where he does find himself intertwined with Kim Novak's, uh, femme fatale character that, uh, you know, is manipulative and and deceitful, and you know. So, with all of that, there is a lead, but a lot of it is still in the in the main character's head. Um, and the entire film just feels droopy and lethargic, where you feel it feels like you're lagging behind because you yourself have vertigo. Not every time. It's not, it's not like you only feel this way when they have the contra zoom where you're peering down the stairwell and, oh my goodness, look at it expand and you feel so small. You know, it, yeah. it happens even in, in the slower scenes where it's, it's this brooding at any second now something could happen. And I, I think if you're following the cues of the mystery, you'll, you'll pretty much expect what's going to happen by the time the climax happens. But I don't know about you. I sure as hell did not expect the absolute final seconds of the film. And I do mean second. It's not like a minute where things clear up. I mean, it's the very, very, very ending where as soon as that happens, it says the end and you don't even have enough time to think about what just happened. And it is one hell of an ending, I've got to say. So for my pick is is Vertigo. It's a it's a pretty fantastic film. It's probably his best directed film. He's got great lead performances from uh, James Stewart and Kim Novak, who both probably given James Stewart. It's it's kind of tough because he does have quite a few great roles, but I would say those are those are the two defining performances that are, are definitely going to go down in some of the greatest in cinema history, and. You know, we we were complaining about some of the scoring and in, in movies. I think this is one of the best scores from that era. Um, it does great to sort of heighten the tensions while not being too in your face. It's it's like a a good horror movie where they don't use they don't use uh, jump scares with the music to to get a scare out of you, but. It does a good job of keeping, you know, your tension and your your back up against the wall for the whole time without uh, feeling let down during maybe some of the quieter moments. Um, so that was something that I really appreciated, and, and the fact that like you watch the movie, it's kind of a, it's a bit of a long one. Um, I guess it's not that long; it's only a little over two hours. Uh, but it seems like the first half of the movie it's been wrapped up and then you realize that there's a completely different movie to go on afterwards, which is kind of a, a bit of, I guess it's a bit of a, a Hitchcock thing because he did that with psycho as well, but to see it done so well is, is always a pleasure to watch. Yeah. And it's not, it's not like it is a completely different movie. It's, it still feels like one complete piece, but 
you feel like you're taking out a different avenue at, at first. And that uneasiness sets the tone for the remainder of the film. I guess, like you said, with Psycho. Or another really good recent example for anybody who's new to Hitchcock and maybe has seen uh, more contemporary films that that is interested in perhaps revisiting all this older stuff. Gone Girl basically does that, where it starts off a specific way, and about two-fifths of the way through, it's something radically different, and you're seeing this the start of this second completely different movie within a movie, and um, I, 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 I'd like to believe that Hitchcock was one of the first people to kind of add this style to his filmmaking, because I don't know if a lot of people who did that back then, except for not even noir directors would have done that, I think. You know, I think it's something that he definitely popularized. No, noir di- directors seem to like keeping you on your toes the whole time and then maybe shifting the direction for the like the final reveal, um, yeah. but not necessarily in the same way where this is like, okay, you, the first half of Vertigo goes and you're like, okay, it's just a regular mystery film. Okay, Um there's the first bell tower scene. Okay. And now we're kind of in a psychological thriller almost because you're trying to figure out what's real, what's fake, what's really going on. And it just yeah. tonally changes to be something completely different, which is very different than, than stuff like the noir where it's like, and it was me the entire time behind it all sort of thing where the, the bit of a reveal. I know that's, we both love noir and that's a bit of a, a cheesy way of me to say it, but that I know what, I know what you're saying. Um, yeah, I think I mentioned psycho, I guess let's, let's move on to psycho. That is, uh, is interestingly enough, uh, was the movie that my girlfriend and I first watched together for the first time. So that was the first movie we saw together. Oh, that's promising. I'm yeah. surprised you're, you've been together for so long. <laughs> um, Do you like animals, Steph? <laughs> <laughs> it was funny because that was one where when uh, when we when we first started dating, we were talking about, oh, um, neither of us had seen it, but we'd always want it to. So uh, we made that one of our uh, one of our early date movies, which uh, uh, it went surprisingly well, actually. And so much like in Vertigo, where we were talking about how the plot sort of shifts, this was, Psycho is probably even more legendary in this fact, where everything about the promotion of the film talked about how Janet Lee was the lead, the star of the film. And spoiler, spoiler alert for a movie that's over 50 years old, she dies about a third of the way into it. And the plot completely shifts. So you think it's about Janet Lee and her stealing this money and all this sort of thing. But then you realize, no, it's not about Janet Lee at all. It's about Norman Bates. It's about what's going on with the hotel and his house and all that sort of thing, which is the first time you see that, it, it even if you know that Janet Lee dies not long into the film, it's still a crazy thing to see. Like, you just don't see that in movies. Mm-hmm. Or especially back then, because I remember Hitchcock infamously said theaters have to close as soon as the movie starts. You're not allowed to come in um, because he didn't want the movie to be spoiled for anybody. And he wanted you to watch the entire thing and not talk about it because he knew he was doing something pretty profound with a film that kills off a main character so quickly within like a half hour which you've never seen in films before that just doesn't happen 
especially not in 1960, you know. And it is absolutely genius. And the fact that he chose to shoot in black and white when at the time color film was readily out there. So if you're watching this thinking that the movie's older than it is, it's not. It's done to great effect. You know, black and white photography can sometimes be far more powerful than color photography. And this is one of those instances where it just works so well. It was it was mainly done because of the famous shower murder scene uh, to sort of get away with not be not having to show blood and making it appear better and you know you, there's reports of people thinking that the film was color corrected and actually did show red blood going down the drain and things like that and it's all about how our brain is confused and i don't know that that's 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 a pretty good example of, you know, if you want to be a director, watch this and then reevaluate yourself because if you don't think you can if you don't think you can muster up that sort of thing, then you got a long way to go. No, yeah, Psycho is a is a terrific film, I think. And um I think out of all of his films, that would be his his go-to introductory film. What would you say about that? Um Maybe. I think it's probably his only real pure horror film. So it's not going to be really indicative of, of other stuff you're going to get into. But it's probably it's probably an easily accessible one where if you can watch that and enjoy it, you can probably watch any of his films and, and find something to like as well. So it's definitely probably the... I guess the most crowd pleasing one as far as how everything pays off in the end. Well, okay. You, you mentioned that you think it's his only or his most horror like one. What about something like the birds? Um, that's, that's a bit of a different, that's a bit of an interesting case because I think, I think that if he had waited a little bit to make that film, it would probably be even better. I think it's got some really strong performances in it. Um, but his downfall is the birds themselves. So it becomes a bit cheesy now to watch, you know, these seagulls flying in and attacking. Um, the only time that it really works is when she's in the attic, when uh, the main girl's in the attic. I'm blanking on what her name is right now. Um the character that Tippi Hedren plays. Um, oh yeah, I I have no idea. I've, I watched it a really long time ago. <laughs> so like the scene where she's in the attic and is being attacked is really good and intense. But like when the birds are just attacking on the street, it does not work. Yeah, there are a few things that are hokey and just kind of don't work. But um, I don't know, as a whole, it's actually not too bad. Yeah, I think it's probably a, a bit of a lesser cousin to Psycho, uh, and because of the way it's maybe aged as well, uh, I view it as less of a, a horror film um, than it probably actually is. Uh, so, so I don't know. It's it's one that you know it was my introduction to to Hitchcock, so it's always going to hold a bit of a, a special place for me, but. Um, I think it's maybe one of the weaker ones as far as his um, maybe, I guess if you want to call his canon filmography of uh, of his top tier ones, it's probably on the lower end of that top tier. Yeah, probably. Um, but, you know, 
his his lower films are still quite good i would say i think that's the thing you know i'm i'm saying it's a bit of a lower film but it's still better than probably everything else that was coming out at that time especially in the the horror thriller sort of genre uh a, a hitchcock you know b movie is still better than than most directors a movies will ever ever be so that's sort of saying a lot i'm i'm grading it on the hitchcock scale and not on the the horror thriller scale yeah that's a good way of looking at it uh now i know your other favorite one is rear window um you want you know give a little bit of love for that one (laughs) sure the fact that you know all of this takes place within uh james stewart's apartment building is Take enough reason alone to go see this and see how it gets pulled off and the music the fact that it's the score is done by an adjacent window where this piano teacher is giving lessons or or having a party i think is so clever um because it it's diegetic and it still accompanies the film in such a good way where it's at night you know sometimes the the pianist is asleep so when we don't get music to make things more suspenseful, there's a good reason for it because the pianist is asleep. And just so much of the art direction is crazy. The fact that they built this miniature set with all of these realistic rooms and everything going on within them, I think it's just, it's insane like how much of this film gets pulled off. And when you're talking about Hitchcock and you go into his most ambitious films and this is hitchcock you know you're you're talking about something truly crazy because again this is hitchcock he's done some of the best films of all time and a good chunk of them too and i would consider vertigo his best but rear window his most ambitious honestly you know that's that's probably not too far off um there are there are sections in this where you 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 look at it you you can show a number of scenes and you just wonder how does he come up with this how did he pull this off all, all these sort of things and it's it just it's it's no reason why his name was the master of suspense because rear window is probably one of his more most suspenseful films as far as what's happening. You know, the stakes aren't as high as, say, something in uh, in Psycho or The Birds, where there's more external forces there. But the suspense is probably higher than uh, than any other film that he had ever directed. Um, this is another James Stewart movie, so you know, maybe maybe there's something to do with the fact that James Stewart is in two of his best films says something about that. Maybe it's more James Stewart's performances or something. Um, but he's, he turns in another great performance that could have been a bit of a lazy one, like Olivier did because he's sort of confined to a wheelchair, but instead he turns in an amazing performance despite his limitations. I think, in fact, his limitations uh, enhance his performance as well because you feel the urgency that is there, especially the, the, last, uh, the last act when um, Grace Kelly is, is investigating the apartment uh, of their suspected murder neighbor. Yeah, and it's, it's crazy because, again, this is all from, from this one perspective. So you feel as distant as his character does. So 
all of the suspense that is created comes from the director basically pulling you away and you feel as curious as James Stewart does. And that's why it's such a successful movie because you're not getting the full picture and you've got to make your own decisions and speculations as well, which us as a viewer sitting on the couch become as helpless as James Stewart is because we're all, we're all stuck watching the same thing. We're stuck watching James Stewart watching them. We can't leave. So it's that sort of great thing where Hitchcock is using, um, James Stewart as the vantage point for the audience. And he does that to great effect. Especially because he's stuck in a wheelchair with a broken leg. And if anything, it's almost a statement on filmmaking itself, because let's not forget that James Stewart is, is a photographer, which of some sorts, a film, a filmmaker is a photographer, right? And he's stuck. He's stuck in this position behind a camera and he's trying to tell a story or trying to discover something through his lens, which I'm guessing could have been a starting point for Hitchcock trying to express filmmaking himself and saying, it's not easy, guys. How many times can you tell a story from behind a lens? Well, here is one. To me, it's almost a Fellini's eight and a half where Fellini said, I've got director's block. I don't know what to do. Wait, I'll make a movie based on that. You know, so possible right yeah um yeah that, that's that's definitely a common example the coen brothers have done that as well referring to eight and a half um with um oh what, barton, fink? barton fink yeah or yeah. they had writer's block so they wrote a movie about writer's block um i guess moving on uh another i guess the last main one that we should talk about is notorious which i had only watched for the first time uh a, a few weeks ago uh, because I knew we were going to be talking about Hitchcock, and and I I really loved it. You know, the pacing is a bit is a bit weird. It's it's clearly not his best film, but I think it has some of the most uh, imaginative um, direction and and cinematography in any of his films. Yeah, especially with his earlier period, which there is a very very big separation between um, between the two eras, I would say. Or three, even if you're considering like before everything else. His silent era? Yeah, exactly. It's probably what I consider his best of his earlier noir period. Um, what, you know, it's better than uh, everything else there. And I think it holds up with his more artistic period. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Uh, what did you think about it? Cause you said you had some things, uh, that you were fond of and some, some things you weren't fond of. I remember. Yeah. I thought, I thought what I wasn't fond of was it seemed that the main characters, Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman fell in love really quickly without really properly showing it. They go from one minute hating each other to the next minute. So in love that they're willing to die for each other, which I thought was a little funny and shoehorned in, um, you know, the before hating part works and the after them being in love works. It was just the act of actually falling in love that I didn't think worked. Um, but I thought some of the, some of the cinematography, like, uh, when, uh, Ingrid Bergman is um, is drugged and she's about to pass out 
and the camera is kind of moving at a, a dizzying pace and there's shadows on the wall that are moving around and, and things like that uh, is absolutely imaginative and, and a great way to show that because, you know, there there could have been a million ways to shoot that and Hitchcock did it the best. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, Hitchcock at his worst is still leagues ahead of a whole lot of other filmmakers, but Hitchcock at his best. And he had quite a few bangers and all of them I haven't even seen yet. Like Spellbound, I have not seen. Um, oh, Shadow of a Doubt was the one that Del Toro said was his absolute favorite. I still have not seen that actually. Suspicion. Yeah, which, yeah Suspicion, which Del Toro said was Rebecca, but refined and better. Um, I have not seen. There are so many which I still haven't seen, and yet I feel like I've seen so I've seen enough to kind of say, I know this man, but cl- clearly I don't, because I remember Del Toro was going into the fact that um, he feels that Hitchcock was always misunderstood, even by his biggest fans. And um, which I found to be a bit of an odd statement to make. He was saying he mentioned that um, it kind of took until Cahiers de Cinema, the famous French magazine uh, that. Uh, Francois Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard worked for before mm-hmm. they became filmmakers. Uh, it took until Cahiers du Cinema to to point it out his auteurness, I guess if you want to say, and his masterfulness uh, because up until then he was sort of known as a sequence director, which I find a bit confusing because if you think about some of his most famous films, he's more famous for the sequences in them than and some of the films as a whole, you know, Vertigo, you talk about the bell tower sequences um, in Psycho, it's the shower scene in The Birds, it's the attic scene when she's being attacked in North by Northwest. It's uh, the climbing the of Mount Rushmore yeah. in, or the plane. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when when I think of Hitchcock, those are the moments that sort of instantly pop up in my head and those that's exactly what a sequence director is. That's what he's famous for sort of thing. So I find that a bit of a, an odd thing to sort of grapple with. Although his films do offer way more, you know, under the surface sort of thing that I guess it is a bit inappropriate for me to say, Oh yeah, he is a, he is a sequence director. Maybe it's because of its of the time that this came out because or his films came out rather because um, we we talk about Psycho or Vertigo where it has like the different films within a film and the fact that they they coexist in within the same singular film and the fact that it works. I think maybe back then um, what we see now as great films with with big scenes back then because Hitchcock was ahead of his time they saw it as these scenes stick out way too much instead of the film being kind of cohesive. Whereas we're used to that kind of thing now where if you watch something like Inception, obviously the whole movie is good, but then you'll have particular parts that you consider your favorite. Whereas if you look at something like Casablanca, the whole film is kind of one single note. I mean that in a good way where the whole thing is, is just, one unit you know and it doesn't work the same way where you have moments that are that are meant to kind of kick you in the teeth like a lot of these hitchcockian films have 
So maybe back then they weren't necessarily used to it. And that's why he's considered like a sequence director of sorts where he had these moments within a, within a film that were his best, which I think his films on the whole were, were, were great, but I could see, I could see why some of his sequences are, are definitely um, shoved to the forefront when, when we talk about such a filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, I guess uh, to sort of, wrap things up a little bit what what is his what is his legacy for you when when people talk about hitchcock or when you're talking about it what what does that mean to you to me it's a director that was prolific that somehow had all of these different ideas under under his or in his sleeve that he just kept dishing them out and he was he was kind of perverse in such a way but he helped push filmmaking because you know, a lot of directors would be safe, or what would the audience want? You know, Hitchcock gave what the audiences wanted by doing the opposite, by giving us what we wouldn't want, what would make us feel uncomfortable rather than make us feel like, okay, we're fine because we're the viewer. He paved the road for a lot of filmmakers, and he did so while torturing everybody on camera and in, and in the chairs watching the film. And because of that, he kept us entranced, excited, not knowing where anything was going, and just completely fixated on these characters that could be killed off within minutes, or uh, these stories that could take a twist and turn the completely other direction. You know, he completely toyed with his films, the people within them, the people watching them, the people who worked on them, everything. The only person who knew fully what was going on from the get-go was Hitchcock himself. And the fact that he still had control, such control with this in mind of so many different films, I think is a true testament to his craft. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. Um, when I think of Hitchcock, you know, it's sort of warm fuzziness that I'm feeling, you know, knowing that such a talent has existed in this world and brought so much, so many great films to, to us that we should all be really thankful that such a man existed. And he did so many interesting takes. I think he, he was, he was better at deconstructing genres better than, than just about any other director uh you know uh someone like Wes Craven who just died sort of deconstructed the horror film with Scream and and I feel like Hitchcock did a lot of that whether it was with Psycho deconstructing what the female lead was supposed to be or with Vertigo for what we were supposed to be believing or you know like <laughs> basically every film of his we can sort of look at and as you're saying you know the audience was expecting one thing he ended up doing the complete opposite and it worked way better. You know, most movies that don't work is because they're either too predictable or too cliche. And he went out of his way to avoid those sort of things. Yeah. Which especially back then is quite risky because you look at something like Tarantino now. And I mean, now, now, and you know, everybody loves him and he's seen as like, this eccentric filmmaker but back in the early 90s when Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction came out that's when he was seen as like this this rebel that 
that did things that shouldn't be done, you know, but we're in a, we're in a situation now where now he's kind of been welcomed very quickly or, you know, I guess an example is Gaspar Noé, where he's made some of the most controversial films of all time. And his film Love is premiering at TIFF, actually. And the fact that he's using unsimulated sex scenes with his graphic content that's already within his films, you know, a lot of people are kind of just ho-humming at it. And this is a director that's been out for like 15 years or so. I don't know. Like people either loved Love appropriately or hated it. But the point is that mystique of him being like this in your face where did this come from director is kind of rubbing off same with Lars von Trier you you either love him or you hate him but with back in Hitchcock's time Hitchcock was one of the few people doing this so he was always seen as this complete magician this complete respectable figure this this master of sorts and he's still seen that way that's the kind of power that he has where he had a niche and he didn't get stuck within it. He's, well, you know, Tarantino's still quite acclaimed. It's, some of these other directors are, but depending on who you talk to, but with Hitchcock, he surpassed time. He kept shocking time and time and time again without being nearly as exploitive as, as some of these other directors are, you know. It, he just knew how to mess with people and continue doing so even after his death. It's pretty crazy. Absolutely. Um, do you think that there's any real successors? I know the term Hitchcockian sort of gets thrown around a lot whenever it has to do with a thriller, but are there any real directors who are sort of keeping that mantle up or at least specific films that are actually Hitchcockian in nature? Because what is actually... Hitchcock is, you know, he would, there'd be some light humor to diffuse the tension. There would be some pretty inventive cinematography. There was some great twists and turns. So it's not just any one thing that Hitchcock was known for. It's a combination of a lot of things. And I think that the term Hitchcockian sort of gets thrown around a little too loosely without actually appreciating everything that he did to make his films work. In terms of actual successors, I wouldn't say that there are, you know. I I believe anybody who loves Hitchcock enough and is an actual masterful filmmaker would be somebody like Guillermo del Toro, where they stay the hell away from trying to replicate his films, but they're definitely influenced by him as they make conscious decisions on, hmm, how should I affect this scene? what would Hitchcock have done to make this thrilling instead of being a hokey jump scare, you know, which you see a lot of in Pan's Labyrinth, that kind of, that kind of suspense, even though it's not necessarily a suspenseful movie, but the way that the camera follows Ophelia around or the, the, the placing of things or the development of the story and the fixation of objects, like the captain being obsessed with his watch, you know, are quite Hitchcocking in the, in their own right, where, it's this human need to grip onto something. You know, somebody like Darren Aronofsky doesn't make Hitchcock films, but you could tell that he's been influenced by Hitchcock with, you know, something like Black Swan, where you have a similar character having a mental breakdown slowly but surely, like you see in Vertigo or Requiem for a Dream, or you see um, 
specific sequences done in an artsy kind of way, which might work or they might not work depending on who you talk to. But it's the same thing. They're trying different things because Hitchcock tried different things, different ways to evoke fear instead of just let's have the violence screech for a split second that he jumps out of a corner. You know, all of these different takes on fear or on anxiety or on human disintegration. A lot of these were from that nicely paved road that Hitchcock made, but I don't think anybody who loves Hitchcock enough is dumb enough to try and replicate his films entirely. And I think anybody who has tried to and, and has tried their very best to do that has pretty much failed catastrophically. Need I remind you of the Psycho remake? <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't seen it, but I am I am well aware of why it failed so spectacularly. I think you're right that, you know, there may be films that have elements of his influence. I think his influence is, is over basically every sort of mystery, thriller, horror, noir, even even some dramas. His it's basically impossible to kind of ignore his influence over all of those genres because he sort of redefined them and made them his own. Um, you know, you mentioned Inception earlier. There's there's quite a bit of parallels between um, the way Inception works as far as some of the plot devices and some of the stuff that Hitchcock would use. But still, that's a pretty far-fetched example pan's labyrinth i agree with what you're saying but still that's a pretty far-fetched example of, of what a hitchcock film would be like i imagine if hitchcock directed something like pan's labyrinth he could probably do something pretty cool and interesting but i don't think it's a direct sort of successor the way you can sort of look at maybe someone like Steven Spielberg's sci-fi films are a direct descendant of some of the stuff that kubrick was trying to do yeah, absolutely. Um, you see a lot more of this with other directors. I mean, um, uh, I think a good example is if you listen to our last podcast, Ingmar Bergman was very influenced by um, by Ford's directing. And you could see some very clear similarities between the two, even despite the fact that Bergman himself was quite a game changer and an auteur of sorts. Um, I don't know. What are some other good examples? Like, uh, you know, some quirkier filmmakers might've gotten stuff from other quirky filmmakers, or you just see a lot of similarities. And, you know, Tarantino himself is probably the biggest film fanatic of all time, where almost everything within his films is a take on other films. And his biggest biggest inspiration is Sergio Leone where his favorite film if you check out a lot of Tarantino you'd know this by now is The Good, The Bad and The Ugly which is actually my own favorite film and the beginning of Inglorious Bastards is almost at times almost shot for shot the exact same beginning of The Good, The Bad and The Ugly where you see this nefarious figure coming into this, this humble home on this farm or on this, this working environment and he comes in and the whole place suddenly becomes darker, not even literally, but it just feels like this ominous presence, even though it's a brightly lit facility. And the way they sit, the way they talk to one another, him or the, the villainous character and, and whoever owns the home, the way other people look by in Inglorious Bastards, it's people underneath the floorboards or outside. And the good, the bad, the ugly, it's people upstairs. 
you know, almost everything is almost shot for shock. But Tarantino would tell you immediately, oh, yeah, I did that on purpose. I love Sergio Leone, you know. Um, with Hitchcock, you don't really find that ever. I don't think anybody would even try to attempt to come close to a Hitchcock, to a Hitchcock motif of sorts, unless they're using dolly zooms, specific elements, um, ideas. But they don't really do stuff like this ever with Hitchcock. Not that I've seen. Or it's never really worked for their benefit. I think sort of my my last thought on, on all this is, as far as going back to his legacy, is you have a filmmaker who, you know, has a tier of films that are considered not only his best works, but some of the greatest films of all times. You have Vertigo, Rear Window, and Psycho. Those three are basically like playing director on God mode where they're they're just that basically perfect films that no one can even touch at. And then, you know, you have the next tier, whether it's stuff like uh, Notorious, uh, The Birds, Strangers on a Train, stuff like that, where that's still better than most filmmakers could ever get. You know, if... If Strangers on a Train was another director, that would probably be their best film that they ever made. And then, you know, you go down to the next level where it's some of his stuff that there's stuff that either hasn't aged well or wasn't at the same level, either North by Northwest or Spellbound. Um, Even Rebecca. Rebecca. Oh, yeah. Rebecca I would put up in that second tier. Um, okay. But yeah, where it's like things that. Are, are pretty solid, but there are some things that don't work. That would be, you know, still a top 10 movie of that year sort of thing. So it's kind of crazy to think that, you know, you could probably do about five or six tiers of goodness of Hitchcock films, and each one is still going to be the best of what that grouping is. You know, you're talking about Hitchcock's B films, whether it's stuff like the 39 steps or, or something like that. And that's still a lot better than a lot of directors, which is kind of crazy to think about that, that someone could be so prolific and still have such master over the craft. Yeah, because um, this happened a lot with music as well, where, you know, musicians would um, release two albums within a year and all them afterwards. And now it's like, it's such a steady pace to think about that with film is outside of the sign film era, might I add is absolutely insane. And you see people now, like to go back to Tarantino, people are waiting on his new film, the hateful eight. They're like, yes, we're finally here for the hateful eight. And it came out relatively what's considered soon after, um, Django unchained, which that came out only 2012. So if that's considered quick, I mean, I don't even know what people would consider Hitchcock's conveyor belt of ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so basically what we're saying is if you don't, if you haven't seen a lot of Hitchcock films, why are you listening to this? Go and watch some. And if you are a big Hitchcock fan like us, you know, maybe uh, tonight put on your favorite Hitchcock film and remind yourself why you love him so much. Music this week is brought to you by Birds of Bellwoods. They are a Toronto-area band that plays country, folk, rock, a little bit of everything. Uh, earlier this summer, they played at the Boots and Hearts Festival. And then back in September, they also played at the Toronto Urban Roots Festival. So make sure you go to the show notes and you can. there'll be a link to buy their EP, The Fifth, which just came out this summer. 
and please listen to everything else they have. Yeah, and you can also please follow along uh, on Twitter at ContraZoomPod, and our show notes are going to be up on liveandlimbo.com. Where can all of our listeners find you, Andreas? You can find me at Andreas Babs. And you could find me at DGAPA. And so uh, let us know what you think of your favorite Hitchcock film or our interpretations of Rebecca or things like that. So uh, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.